Welcome back to another episode of the Royals Farm Report Podcast. My name is Joel Penfield. As always, I'm joined by Alex Duvall. How are you doing today, man? Joel, I'm fantastic. High school baseball started in Missouri today. We had our first round of tryouts uh, today, so excited to be getting back into the swing of the coaching side of things and uh, really looking forward to a, a beautiful spring. Baseball's back, and I this is my favorite time of year. I really couldn't be more excited than I am right now. Yeah, I had a great weekend. I was in uh, Frisco, Texas uh, this past weekend for the Frisco Classic covering Oklahoma State. Uh, baseball, they played UCLA, Illinois, and Texas A&M over the weekend. Went one and two, tough weekend of baseball, but to be able to do a little bit of kind of the journalistic side of things and uh, just watch baseball was it was just a great time, man. I'm, I'm so excited that it's this time of year. Yeah, I this is, I mean, you get March Madness, baseball starting, the weather turns. This, this is a really, really good uh, point in the year to debate that this is the best time of the year. This time in Christmas for me, but uh, – yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we are joined today uh, by Jeff Ellis. He is the lead MLB draft and prospect analyst for 24-7 Sports, also hosts Locked on Indians, uh, featured on national radio, so he's a busy man. Uh, he's taking the time to join us today. Jeff, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I was uh, talking to you guys pre-show, and uh, I had some stuff come up this weekend, so I, I couldn't dive in, so... Uh, you know, there's a, it was a fun weekend of college baseball, and I'm kind of looking through things now. You know, you you guys alerted me to Nick Gonzalez and his continued going off in this, and uh, Levi Thomas was the pitcher from Troy that, uh, I don't know how much people out there are following Troy, but like week one, he had 14 strikeouts in five innings and allowed one hit, no walks. Week two, in six innings, he had 14 strikeouts and allowed no hits but one walk, I think. And then he beat Florida on Friday. So I'm st- I, I have the video saved. I haven't had a chance to watch it. But things like that are what's so fun. Like Nick Gonzalez doing what he's doing is amazing. Or when you look at Spencer Tor- Torkelson with like twice as many walks as games played. But uh, I mean, what really gets me excited, honestly, are the guys like uh, Levi Thomas, who's no one's talking about. I always like to do my fun with numbers piece. That's why like almost a year ago at this time I, I was telling also before the show like i wrote i think the first national piece on nick gonzalez just because i'm like i can't ignore this even though he's not draft eligible something's happening here right so let's just jump right in here to some of the guys at the top of the draft maybe for those that don't quite know we've started to kind of compile some things for the draft guide coming out here uh, later on this year but you mentioned Nick Gonzalez and Spencer Torkelson. Those are going to be two dudes that are going to go in the top five, you know, maybe even higher uh, in the Major League Baseball draft coming up here in June. But who are some other guys right now that you have your eye on that are going to be in the top of that first round that maybe the Royals could take at number four? The Royals are always uh, an enigma. I'll be honest. I find them one of the hardest teams to project. Uh, it, that's a spot where they could go pitching. And for this class is the deepest college pitching class I can recall in what's almost 10 years of covering the draft and what is like five, six years of like in-depth covering. It's a really fun, interesting class. Uh, I mean, but what's also with this class is, I mean, two of the potential top 10 guys have already had some arm discomfort. So it it feels like Asa Lacey, I'm very high on Reed. Detmers, uh, I know he's not as a top 10 guy in a lot of places, but I think he's a top five talent for this draft. Uh, those would be kind of your two most likely pitching arms at this point. Um, 
Austin Martin, the uh, Vandy shortstop, is the one of the other bats to kind of keep in mind high on the list if you're kind of looking in those college ranks. Uh, Zach Veen is the guy who I'm seeing a lot of rising. Uh, have, is it Robert Hassel? I'm, bl- I'm blanking on Hassel's <laughs> first name. Off the top of my head, the uh, 19-year-old power hitter from Pennsylvania. Um, you know, it's it, 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 he's another interesting one. I, I'm very intrigued to see, like, I feel like I can project kind of the first three picks decently well, just based on how those front offices operate. Uh, I also, I didn't mention Emerson Hancock. I got to look at his numbers because he, first outing, not good. Second outing, very good. And, you know, last year was good, but not exceptional numbers for a guy with his stuff, which is always uh, a concern. So uh, I would say the biggest thing with the Rose pick right now is we're kind of three Saturdays in, three weekends in, just getting more and more info to build up to see who could be there. And we'll have to see how they approach. I mean, I, I've been very much very honest about the fact that I don't think there's like a, a 1A talent in this class. So honestly, if I was a team like the Royals, I would, because uh, I, I, it's such a deep draft, I'd be looking at, well, Reed Detmers maybe isn't uh, going to cost might save me a million and a half compared to an Asa Lacey. I'd rather save that million and a half and use it in round two, round three, and just keep stacking talent as opposed to paying the high end price. So it's the same thing. I think the Tigers should be, you know, basically taking those top six, seven guys and seeing, playing them off each other and then take whoever has the, uh, the lowest bonus demand. Jeff, it's interesting. You talk about, there's not a top end talent. I think in my opinion, that Spencer Torkelson is pretty clearly the best hitter, not only in this draft, maybe in the last two or three drafts. Um, so if, if he's not the clear consensus number one player in the draft, it's because he's a first baseman only. Um, how big of an issue do you think Spencer Torkelson's defense is for him in this draft? And do you think it could? there's potential that Spencer Torkelson's defense drops him all the way to the Royals at number four? When it comes to first baseman, uh, you know, I never want to say never, but I, I don't think he is likely to fall super far. I, I do think Detroit will make a lot of sense for him. Uh, I know he's they're trying him in the outfield a bit, but I don't think anyone who actually thinks that's going to stick. Uh, it is, you know, it's he's a first baseman and he's barely barely six one. Um, I think a lot of people are kind of uh, not sure that he really is exactly that listed. I mean, he's a big kid. It's a similar build to Andrew Vaughn, who, honestly, Torkelson and Vaughn, I think as early as five, six years ago, wouldn't even be considered top ten picks, neither of them, because they're, you know, six feet, basically, and they're right-handed, and they play first base, and that's three strikes you're out. Um, The only first baseman I can think of who was the top pick in the draft, at least in my lifetime, was Adrian Gonzalez, I want to say. I think he was a prep player at the time. So that could totally be incorrect. And as I recall, that was also like a super weak draft um, when the Marlins took him number one. And at the time, we did know that like he was probably going to be a plus defender at first, which proved true. And he was what? Okay, I pulled up his number. Six foot two, lefty. So that's kind of why he got to go a bit higher, too. Is uh, they, uh, there's a, There is a bias by teams against right-handed first basemen. That's that's another concern when you look at Torkelson. Um, so if there's an old old school team, which I mean the 
Tigers have shown a mix uh, of old and, and some new in some of their stuff. But if some of those old school guys went out, I don't think Torkelson is your first round pick if you're a top 10 team. I just I, I think there's too too many old school biases involved with him. It's interesting you say that because the Royals drafted uh, um, a first baseman in the first round uh, a couple years ago with Nick Prado. And Nick Prado is left-handed. And if I'm remembering correctly, he's listed like 6'1", 6'2". But Nick Prado wasn't drafted because of his ability to hit for a lot of power, right? He wasn't a guy like Bryce Harper or a guy like Austin Hendricks, who if you draft that prep player in the first Hendricks, round, not Hassel. You know Thank you. You know you're amount of power. Do what? Uh, Hendricks, not Hassel. The guy I pulled the wrong, because it's Robert Hassel is the other, and there's like the big five prep outfielders. And I was, I said Hassel and I meant Hendricks. That was the... Sorry, I just, you know, no, <laughs> had to, no, no sorry to interrupt. It's yeah. just I had my, no. my ah, moment, so, but yeah. No, no uh, not at all, you're good. It just when you, when you draft a player like that, you're getting power, and the Royals drafted first baseman Nick Prado, who doesn't have that power. He's thought of to be more of a contact hitter, controls his own really well. Um, so I do wonder if Nick Prado would be a reason to think that they might draft another first baseman, or if because it didn't work out, maybe they'll shy away. Nick Prado, um, I, I think he's kind of a, like, without this being mean, I think he kind of shows exactly what baseball does poorly when it comes to the draft. And that's because Prado was, everyone talked about the sweet swing. Everything was the sweet swing. You know, it was a very clean swing. And over the years, uh, you know, I started out writing about the Indians, so that's always kind of my go-to. And, it, you know, it's not just the with the Indians and we've seen it with the Royals here with Prado. Um, it's like, I remember distinctly that Tyler Naquin was supposed to have the best college hit tool in his class. Same thing with Bradley Zimmer. And I think in general, like we evaluate hit tools terribly. I don't think anyone is really doing a great job of that. And I think often we see a grade on a hit tool, like, Oh, it's a clean swing. And they repeat it. Um, it's, you know, uh, Kyle Tucker, with the Astros is one of those. It's a it's a beautiful swing, but at the same time, like you know, he'll probably get a chance to finally prove himself this year. But we don't. I I think the danger, if you're going to learn anything from Nick Prado, um, more comes from realizing what we can evaluate well, knowing what's there, and using what's at the table, and not just getting drawn in because a guy can has a, a clean looking swing. I, I think. Almost, I feel more comfortable evaluating pitchers than hitters to a degree if when we're trying to project something like hit tool. Like, I can look at the whole other picture and give a good idea, but I, I, I do think, you know, Prado is one of those guys that just stands out where it was, we, we as I say, the industry, you know, look at someone and think, he, oh, it's a, he's a really strong hitter. And then, I mean, he's struggled to hit, um, to put it nicely, in the minors. So I think it's uh, – and the other thing I will say is he was viewed as, like, first base slash outfield, so similar to Torkelson. But I don't think uh, – at the end of the day, if Nick Prado prevents you from taking Spencer Torkelson at four, um, then you're a bad GM. I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. Which is absolutely fair enough. Um, and since we're talking about hit tools and hitters, the, the two hitters that aren't Spencer Torkelson that are thought that could still be around – at number four, Nick Gonzalez versus Austin Martin. 
when you're evaluating them, Austin Martin, clearly the better defender. Uh, Vanderbilt's run him out in center field lately, and he's looked really good in center field. He's looked really good on the infield. So you got some versatility there, better defender. Probably the better hit tool as well, but he hasn't hit for as much power as Nick Gonzalez has, and Nick Gonzalez still has that hit tool. Evaluating these, those two players, how do you get an edge on one of them, and who are you leaning towards right now in the Austin Martin versus Nick Gonzalez debate? So when I look at them, I think it is, you know, there's a lot of talk that Martin might end up in center field. So it's kind of interesting they have shifted him. Um, there were questions about shortstop. You know, he hadn't had that opportunity. I, I'm leaning, you know, it's early on, but one of the things you do love when you look at Gonzalez is he struck out one, or not Gonzalez, Martin, I mean, is, you know, the very low strikeout rate. It's a guy who every year has gotten better. Um, a big misconception I'll often see about college hitters is that uh like if you look at ed martin i just pulled up his uh baseball cube page that his freshman and sophomore year his uh his bat pip was over four four twenty four forty two and they think oh so he's been lucky in college but what we've actually learned through the years is like college in the lower minors uh some guys will have extremely high bat pips and that's probably a better indicator of hit tool um or ability as a hitter than anything else that you can look at um chris mitchell back in the day at fan graphs um who used to do the cato stuff was kind of the guy who who started with all of that and I, when he brought it out you're like okay yeah this is he has a ton of data to back this up so when you look at martin you look at those bad pips you're like okay this guy is phenomenal honestly i don't think you can go wrong i mean martin you probably do trust the defense a little bit more he's likely going to be a better hitter um but Gonzalez, what then pushes me towards him is, again, he's playing shortstop. I don't know if he can actually handle that. Uh, it's been a mixed bag already, but it's the performance. It's the mind-boggling power. And for me, more than anything else, it's the, the dominance in the cape that he jumped into that level and jumped in. MVP, handled wood bats with no problem, faced top-level competition, no problem. Uh, I often use the Cape as like bonus points. Um, and unless you're really bad, I don't use it as a negative. So like um, Seth Beer, it became a negative because his numbers are so low. Same thing with Logan Davidson at Clemson. But uh, honestly, I view those guys with, between Gonzalez and Martin as almost 1A, 1B. And depending on what you're looking for, I think either one is is really good. So looking at, at prep hitters really quick before we, we move on to college pitchers and other things, is there anybody, like a guy like Zach Veen, for instance, or anybody else uh, that can maybe slide into the top five and be there for the Royals possibly to take there? Uh, I mean, the two names that come up, I mean, there's there's a ton of, you know, there's the big five, so let's see if I can get this right this time. You have Veen, you have Hendricks, you have Hassel, you have Cruz, and then... Uh, is it? Gosh, I'm gonna put it's Armstrong Crow, Crow Armstrong, Pete. Crow Armstrong, Crow Armstrong. This is what happens when I do things top of my head. But um, I think from that group, I could see any number. Like I, Cruz has really performed really well over the years. I'm still a big fan of his. Uh, Veen kind of, you know, in terms of like the NFL draft stuff is big right now and. You always hear about guys like the best shape of their life. Well, that's Veen, but I mean, he's an 18-year-old kid, so 
it might be a legitimate statement when you say that the he's in the best shape of his draft life. But um, and then it, it's kind of what you're looking for. It's like with Hendricks, you know, everyone talks about the bat speed. I haven't heard this much talk about bat speed since uh, Clint Frazier was drafted by the uh, the Indians. Uh, we'll see about the overall package there, but power is the calling card. Dean is more the complete guy. Uh, Cruz, I just I like the hit tool and the approach, but not the most athletic kid. He's definitely on the, the corners. Hassel is another one who has a better shot up the middle. Um, again, he's one where people really like the hit tool and all the tools around him. I think, you know, uh, Crow Armstrong is a step down. Like, it used to be kind of the big five. I feel like it's kind of like the big four and then kind of a next grouping. But uh, I could see, I mean, Veen and uh, Hendricks and even Hassel. I think people aren't sure about Cruz's athletic ability, and I think that will push him. But I think, honestly, any of those three um, could get up there. Jordan Walker would be the other prep bat to look at, um, just with the the power potential and the ability at third. Really, the only question becomes, can you get him out of Duke? Uh, I I talked about in my mock. It reminds me a lot of the Josh Bell situation, and not just because they're they're African-American, but because in that case, like Josh Bell, I think one parent was a college professor and the other was a computer programmer. And in uh, Jordan Walker's case, one parent, I believe, is a Harvard graduate and the other is an MIT graduate. So it's these parents that strongly believe in education uh, who have a very talented child going to with um, with Bell, it might have been Stanford, with uh, Walker, he's like the biggest recruit Duke's ever had. It's, it's can you get, uh, can you sign them, you know, talk, but that might be something to say for those guys who might make it to campus type of deal, but I think kind of those three outfielders and Walker are kind of the the crux of the group that I would put as the best chance to kind of filter into the top four overall or the top 10. Gotcha. So, so some of the guys we mentioned talking about uh, college pitchers, we mentioned Asa Lacey, Reed Detmers, Emerson Hancock's another guy that's at the top of the list there. Who are some other college pitchers to look at that could sneak into the top of the first round or just other guys to look for uh, later in the draft as well? Everyone likes CJ Van Eyck. Um, Very slight build. Uh, but he, he performs well. It's a pretty safe profile. I don't know if he's going to really add much. I don't know if he needs to add much, but he's got three pitches. He commands them well. Um, if you're looking for a safe, pretty quick-moving guy, uh, Hancock, or Hancock, Van Eyck's the, the player. Um, there's the two hurt arms, Garrett Cochette uh, and JT Ginn. Ginn's slight build was already a concern. Uh, with Grishat uh, from Tennessee, the, the anytime a guy's velocity jumps, I get scared. And then when we get velocity jump and, and arm troubles, I get doubly scared. And I, I don't know um, how radioactive it makes him. I mean, there's a point in time where teams wouldn't care about arm troubles, but now we're seeing more guys kind of struggle to get all the way back. So it'll be something to watch. Um, Cade Cavelli at Oklahoma. It always had stuff in the first two weeks. He was performing well. I didn't see how he did this week. Um, but, you know, he was someone who, in spite of performances his first two years, was considered a potential first rounder. Cole Wilcox was the highest rated player on my 20, what, 2018 board, did not sign. 
first week at Georgia was quite good. And then I feel like I'm, there's a few other arms in there. From, I mean, this college class goes, uh, honestly, forever. Uh, uh, I'm going to definitely butcher uh, Carmen Mladzinski from South Carolina, who also had the big cape and was hurt all of last year, is kind of the last of those higher-tier college arms, depending on how you view um, Max Meyer, who I'm hearing like just tons of great things about, but literally no one I talk to thinks he's going to stay a starter. I got asked about one guy that I've been on since the 2017 draft, or uh, 2018 draft, actually, because I think he's a sophomore eligible uh, guy out of Miami. Is Slade, I think it's uh, Ciccone or Ciccone, or I don't know how you pronounce that last name. Uh, he's a guy that I actually, Jeff, did, you might have mocked him to Kansas City with one of their um, first round comp picks in, in 2018, or somebody definitely comped him to the Royals so I went and looked at him and really liked what I saw in 2018 thought he'd be a good pick uh at a high school he's draft eligible sophomore this year is there any chance he's still around when the Royals pick for a second time at 32 I I mean I I would bet I, if I had to pick which way to bet I would bet on him being there I mean his he got some as I recall from him he he was kind of one of those guys who was rising and then got hurt and especially with a high school kid, you have such limited chances. Um, and I mean, he could have been signed, but he was also another guy. Seven figure was what was attached to him, supposedly at the time. Uh, it's just sitting down, seeing what he's got. I think he could be there. He could get his name, you know, out of that area. But in a class this deep, because um, you know, you bring him up, and he's kind of, at least for me, like in a mirror, mirror in a tier, like. Uh, Tommy Mace at Florida, who was another kid who I think the Reds were the team I was, or maybe he was drafted by the Reds. There was some connection with Tommy Mace and the Reds. I'll put it that way. Can't remember what it is now, but uh, Joe Boyle, or no, yeah, Joe Boyle. Uh, Notre Dame uh, was, let's put it this way Notre Dame did a very good thing firing their entire coaching staff at the end of last year. Like, a team could have done really well in the draft, just drafting Notre Dame players, knowing they weren't getting good coaching because so many guys hit the minors, like Kevin Biggio is kind of the the poster child for this, and all of a sudden exploded out. And a lot of pitchers found, teams found more. And Boyle was, he's one of those guys who early entered, extremely young for the class back in 2017. I was going to put a first round grade on him, and he's hitting 99-100, I want to say, this year for Notre Dame. Um, still has some work to do, can use some coaching, but he has shown some improvement. He's kind of one of those guys that uh, I'm extremely interested in. Um, try, I mean, it's interesting to talk about Slade Ciccone and like Cole Wilcox. The highest rated guy at any point during that draft class who is draft eligible this year, who's a draft eligible sophomore, Nander uh, DeSatis, and none of us talk about him, and it's been a struggle for him so far. But just uh, the when they pushed back the draft date, which I'm all for, especially as a as a teacher, I, I the later into June, the better for me for my ability to cover it. But uh, by pushing that draft date back because of the rules of the draft, like five or six players gained uh, eligibility this year, and and DeSantis is one of them. Uh, he's at Florida State with uh, C.J. Van Eyck, but it's you know I. 
I kind of went off on a huge tangent. But yes, I think Slate Jacoby could very much be there. I could also see them with some of their small school stuff over the years, looking into uh, Kyle Nicholas at Ball State. I saw him as a freshman there. Todd Blackledge, I believe, is his uncle. So there's some you know sporty uh, bloodlines. He was an Ohio kid, so I knew about him uh, from his time there. And Ball State had Jamison High last year, so they had a lot of people coming to look at them. Gotcha. So this has been awesome, Jeff. It's still March. It's still early. Uh, we are going to have you back on as we get closer to June and we get closer to the draft. We should know a lot more uh, specifically about pitchers' health. But if you had to mock the first four picks of the draft right now, who do you have the Kansas City Royals winding up with if the draft was this Tuesday, uh, March 3rd? So as I'm just uh, thinking, like right now I'd probably still have Torkelson at one. Um, let me is it bad? I don't have the draft order memorized yet. I, I should, but uh, picking which team is it to again? Is that Baltimore? Baltimore. So Baltimore with their advanced statistical approach. I, I think I will go with Gonzalez too because I think he might be a little bit cheaper. And last year there was talk that they were considering uh, a smaller deal. Who's uh, which team's at three? Miami. And they would take Austin Martin. Um, after taking J.J. Blade, you know, their scouting director was a coach at Vandy. He recruited Austin Martin. He coached Blade. I think that I, – I, I think Martin is definitely – like, there's no pick that's more telegraphed than that one. So then you kind of got those three main guys off the board. So, hmm. For the Royals at that part, uh, I this is the thing where I'm looking at a list of players and I'm like, I wonder who's a Boris client. Like I just remember when they took all of the the Boris, uh, you know, guys like uh, Moustakis and Hosmer back in the day. But hmm, if they stick to things. Uh, sleeper there could be Jared Kelly, the pitcher. If they go prep pitcher, I'll just do it this. I'll give one for each position. If they're going pitcher, I would lean towards. Prep pitcher Jared Kelly. If they go with a high school bat, I would go towards uh, Austin Hendrick, the power hitter. I feel like when they have taken those top 10 kids, like back in the, I mean, outside of Christian Cologne, who was a college guy, but the prep ones always were guys that projected to have power. So I would go with Hendrick. Uh, college pitcher, I would go with Asa Lacey for where he's been and missing bats. And, um, College hit, I think college hitter is the one thing that is the least likely because after that little run of guys that I had off the board there, I don't know if Garrett Mitchell is quite their uh, cup of tea and I don't know if anyone's stepped up too high um, at this point in time for that selection. Awesome. I, I do think that the Royals, with this new bump of pitchers uh, they got from 2018, I do think they will look for a bat um, but like you said, if the college bats aren't there and they don't deem one of Zach Bean, Pete, I, I do think as a sleeper, Pete Crow Armstrong is probably the biggest sleeper for the Royals at number four. We know the Royals value their defense. We know they value speed. And I've really never seen a prep center fielder go get it like Pete Crow Armstrong. Um, that dude, for an 18-year-old, is really incredible. I mean, he is really, really, really special in the outfield. And I know the bats a little lacking right now, but he reminds me 
a lot of a slightly less productive Bobby Wood Jr. where you know you're going to have some questions with the hit tool, but the raw power is there. He's an elite defender. He runs well. Um, so he's not Bobby Wood Jr. by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's it would be a similar pick if the Royals wanted to go there for So he's a guy I've got my eye on. I see more Albert Almora for me. That's that's like my comp from going back a few years. I mean, Almora had similar upside, but like the defensive ability in center. That's that's kind of what I see with well, Almora's, Almora's bat that hasn't progressed the way I think the Cubs hope. That 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 would be my my recent uh, comparison defensively. Yeah, that's that's way less fun than way less knock off Bobby Wood Jr. <laughs> and I don't know why, but for some reason, I really keep associating Seth Lawn's way from Ohio State with the Royals. I don't have a good reason for that. Um, I'm trying to remember if like they were in on him a bit out of high school, or if like I I don't think I even knew his agent, so I can't give you I, I wouldn't know that info. So. Uh, I don't know why I have Seth Bonsway in my mind tied to the Royals. Uh, he has missed a ton of bats in the early going, uh, but he might be someone to look at in that second round or so. Jeff, thank you so much uh, for uh, coming on and giving us a little preview of uh, of what the draft could look like coming June. Like I said, we're going to have you on more than likely closer to the draft when we have a better idea of how things will shape out. Uh, but this early in the season to get the, the picture we did, I think is, is very important. So thank you very much for that. For anyone that doesn't follow your work on social media, where can they do that? Um, see, I am at uh, Jeff MLB Draft. Uh, for the time being, I'm still writing at, at Scouting Baseball on 24-7. Um, they're pivoting away from pro sports, so we'll see how long that goes. Um, and then if there are any people uh, a part of the Lockdown Network. So if you be a little bit odd to be a Royals and Indians fan, but if that exists, uh, I do talk about the Indians on a daily podcast uh, over there. But yeah, the best way for draft stuff is uh, through the Twitter at the Jeff MLB Draft. And uh, I, like I said, what I, I really love with this is to go into it and try to find the guys that people aren't talking about. So you may not see as much about the big names, but, you know, you're going to see me digging into someone like Zachary Torat just because UC Santa Barbara has a really good history and he's missing a lot of bats, things like that. So if you like kind of more the fringes, I'm, I'm probably your guy. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. This, like I said, this has been very informative. We look forward to having you on here in the future. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be fun. I look forward to it as well. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Jeff. Thank you once again to Jeff Ellis for coming on, talking a little pre-MLB draft at the beginning of the season. We're going to rehash some of our thoughts uh, here in a couple months as the season rolls on, but I think we have a pretty good baseline of who some of those top guys are that the Royals could take at number four. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, there are some there's some clear-cut answers right now as, as to some possibilities, but the beauty of, of the draft is that guys rise and fall all the time and and it's it's not like the NFL draft where they get so much intel because it's it's so widely covered, right? So there is so much intel because of so many people watching. Um, there's there's even a couple of Twitter accounts, right, that will tweet out the pick before it's aired on TV. But with baseball, like the industry will know, but the media doesn't always cover it, right? So like um, there were rumors about Kumar Rocker last year telling teams you better pipe up ten million dollars or I'm going to Vanderbilt, and obviously nobody's going to do that. But we didn't know that at the time either, so we, you know, we kind of thought maybe the Royals will go get Kumar Rocker and, and try to sign him with some of that extra money, but we didn't know that he was not signable. So 
Um, the MLB draft really is a surprise all around because of that, um, which I think is, is beautiful for the game. Yeah, it makes it that much more interesting. Like you have uh, like Adam Schefter and, and Adrian Wojciechowski that do the M- the NFL and NBA drafts. And we know about two or three minutes before the pick goes out because they very sneakily will drop their, you know, drop their hints and, you know, but there's all the sources they have with MLB. Like it actually is really fascinating. Like, sure, we may have an idea of who's going in that top five, but some teams just come out of nowhere taking people. So it, it makes it all the more interesting and it's, it's exciting to follow. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And especially a team like the Royals, where we have conversations in the group chat all the time about, you know, the Royals are, are college bound. And then I made the point the other day, like they've taken high school guys and almost um, and, and a majority of their first round and like, but 2018, but Bobby a junior. And it's like, man, what do you like? They're so unpredictable. Like if the Royals took Asa Lacey, Nick Gonzalez or Zach Veen, I would not be surprised by any of those selections. Um, so I do think there's going to be a surprise and I do think we'll have a little more info, uh, as we get closer to draft day, but, uh, I, I am looking forward to it. It's another big position for the Royals, right? I mean, they need to hit on this pick, um, small market team. If you're going to cry money, if you're going to cry poor, then you have to hit on these picks. You can't waste top five picks like they've done in the past. So, um, got to make sure they hit, but it'll be interesting to see, uh, what route they go in June. For sure. And there's, like I said, and it's, you know, it's March 4th now. So there's still plenty of time up until June. So we're, we're going to be able to have a lot more conversations about this. But right now, uh, we're going to get some of your questions. We want to do something of a mailbag sort of episode, uh, just at least for half of it. We had about six or seven questions here. Thank you to those uh, that sent questions. We're going to do more of these as the season wears on, uh, especially once we get into the season and we have actual baseball to watch uh, every single day. So we'll start with the first question from a former writer uh, at Royals Farm. He's a professor at University of Virginia, Marcus Mead. And his his question is, what are the odds that Prado Melendez and or Matias regain some prospect value this year? What are the odds they do? Um, I think they are, depending on the player. So if you're Nick Prado, I think, in my opinion, the odds of him regaining his prospect value are about 30, 70 uh, against his favor for MJ Melendez. I think it's closer to 60, 40 in his favor and Sully Matias. I'll throw right in the middle at 50, 50. Um, I, 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 we had a question um, not related to the mailbag, but uh, it's a guy that covers the tiger system. And he said, wow, you guys have Nick Prado at 27. Are you really that low on him? And, and I don't think the answer is, uh, yes, because I don't think any of us have totally written him off. I still think he's totally capable of being a big league baseball player. Um, my question is, you know, playing first base and, and only playing first base, you have to be a well above average hitter in order to salvage value at the position um, if, if you're analytically inclined. And so that means Nick Prado needs to be a 120 WRC plus hitter, a better 20% better than league average in order to get some value out of that position. Unless you're going to be, you know, Evan White defensively, which I think he is capable of. So maybe he doesn't need to be that good. But man, I don't know what the issue is there. So I, I, I won't speak to it too much. The kid's still 20 years old. He's got time, but his, the position worries me. Um, whereas like a guy like Melendez, the reason I have him a little higher is because he's so good defensively, I think there's a really good chance that he is still able to move up the ladder without too much of an issue. Um, 
I, I think he's, you know, we, we've seen tangible changes in his swing. Um, so, so I've got some hope there. And then Suli Matias, I think what you're banking on is that last year had a lot to do with, it was kind of fluky, but also had to do with the hand injury. He broke his hand and didn't tell anybody. So I think you have to pray that that's part of it because there was a stretch. If you guys will remember in April, he hit four home runs in like three games and everybody went, Oh, there it is. And then he fell back off the face of the earth. You have to hope it's the hand. You have to hope that it was the broken hand that caused him. He's got all the tools in the world. He's got all the ability in the world. Just a matter of, can he hit the ball enough for it to matter? Yeah. I, I think MJ Melendez has the high, the highest, you know, percentage ability to gain that, prospect value back because he is so good defensively uh, the the offensive ceiling for catchers is so low that if he even hits you know 20 or 30 percent better than he did this past year then he's going to be back to being one of the better catching prospects in baseball because he is that good defensively and he'll continue to move up the ladder and be a big 12 or the big 12 a big league player in some capacity even if it's a, a backup he's that good Nick Prado I'm still really low on him purely because, um, you know, he, there were signs last year. There were signs the year before uh, that when he, he would get hot for stretches and he, he can swing the stick a little bit good defensively, but he started off 2018 and 2019 so poor that you can't do that for three years in a row. Like you can't put yourself in such a hole offensively that you have to rely on a hot stretch in July and August to get any sort of, you know, make your numbers look any better. If he if he starts off this year well, uh, I imagine he's probably going to be in Wilmington again. I don't I don't know if they move him up to to Double A, but if he hits a, a little bit better, then I'll feel if he starts off the year better, then I'll feel a little bit better about where he's at. But I I think having him in that low to you know mid twenties range right now I think is deserved because he really has not lived up to the billing of what we all thought he would be is a really high contact high average. A uh, really disciplined hitter that plays a solid first base, and he just he hasn't shown that yet with how much he strikes out. And then Sully Matias, man, I I've been kind of low on him since I joined the site. Like watching the what he did in Lexington in uh, 2018 was awesome, and I wish he never got hurt because I know he would have hit north of 40 home runs. But even still, he was still striking well over 30 percent uh, and not walking a ton. And then he was striking out in almost 40 percent of his at bats in Wilmington, even with those. Uh, even before he broke his hand. So a uh, guys like that, that are all or nothing and they have to hit, you know, 30 to 40 home runs a year to provide any sort of value. Even if he is decent defensively, it's just, it's so volatile and you don't find guys like that very often. Like Joey Gallo is very much the exception to the rule when it comes to guys like that, that are very, you know, a ton of swing and miss and a ton of power. It's just so hard to f- play consistently enough uh, to provide any sort of value. So I, I still am definitely skeptical of Sully Matias. Now, if he pops this year, then I'd love to see it, and I, I'm welcoming it, and I hope to be wrong on what I'm talking about right now. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm definitely higher on MJ Melendez than Prado and Matias at this point. Yeah, I think the the quote I always go back to is is Billy Bean and, and Moneyball. If, he, if he's a good hitter, why didn't he hit good? Right, yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's always that way. I was having a conversation with somebody about that regarding Prado the other day. They were saying, well, he's a good hitter. He just struggled. If he's a good hitter, why didn't he hit good? Yeah. And then in the same token, sort of, they were saying, well, he's a good athlete. He'll figure it out. I was like, okay, how good of an athlete? They're like, well, he's a plus athlete. Okay, so put him in left field. Well, well, 
well, what? If he's a good athlete, put him in left field. That that helps salvage some of his offensive. Like, he doesn't need to be as good offensively there to salvage value. Like, well, okay, he can't play left field. It's like, so he's not really that good of an athlete then. Yeah. Well, for a first baseman, it's like, well, that's not what we're talking about, right? So it's a, it's just a classic keep moving the goalpost conversation. Right. And so, and, and, but that's kind of the, the, the thing there is, right? And, and the person I was talking with was kind of giving me, giving me uh, crap for having Prado. I think I had Prado like right at number 30 on my list, on my personal, uh, the aggregate ranking there. So, um, you know, I, I am not by any means writing off Nick Prado. And I hope that, I hope that's clear. Like these kids are 20 years old. Like Nick Prado could still very well be an all star first baseman. I do not know that he won't be that. But all of the data that we have to go off of, Everything we have tells us he's probably not a top 25 prospect in the system right now. That doesn't mean he can't be. That doesn't mean he can't prove us wrong and freezing cold takes won't add us on Twitter later this summer. I'm just saying right now, I am really worried that that is going to be a really big stain on the uh, Royals draft history uh, coming up pretty soon. The good news for the Royals is that that 2017 draft had some depth to it. Uh, Tyler Zuber and Daniel Tillo will both be in the big league bullpen at some point this year. You know, and in every draft, if you can get one or two guys to make consistent big league contributions, you're doing okay. And so to have two in the bullpen is kind of like having one, you know, overall. But then if you get Melendez out of that, if you get Brewer Hicklin out of that, then you've started to to salvage that draft a little bit. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know come off too too harsh on Prado here but um in terms of do I expect him to break out in a big way or do I think that there's a really good chance that last year was fluky and he's the exception to the rule somehow that all three of those guys by the way are exceptions to the rule I don't know um so I guess we'll just have to wait and see yeah exactly so we'll move on here to the next question from Daniel Ross Uh, do you think Brady McConnell will turn things around and become a consensus top 10 guy in the organization by the end of the season so I think there's there's I'm gonna cheat a little bit. Do I think he will? I don't know. Do I think he can? Absolutely. He is more than capable of being a top five prospect in this system. The kid has a crazy amount of tools, crazy raw power. He can run. I think he's probably a third baseman or a center fielder. I don't know that shortstop is his position in the long run. But even at third base or even really in center field, if he can if he can anchor it down and and, and figure out how to hit you know, like he did at Florida. Yeah, absolutely. He's capable. Do I think he will? Probably not this year. I think this year between Lexington, I don't know that he gets out of Lexington this year. Um, so if he's, uh, uh, you know, in Lexington all year, um, even if he hits to a 110 WRC plus, I think it's going to take like a 130 for me personally to make for him to make that jump. I'm going to need to see the strikeout rate below 29%. Right. So just I'm going to need to see that progress. And I just don't know that that will happen this year. If you were asking me to bet money on when I thought he'd be a top 10 prospect, if at all, I'd say next summer is probably his big summer in 2021. Just feels like, you know, the the trajectory, because if you if you'll remember, he's supposed to be at Florida right now. Right. He should be he should be wearing a Gator uniform if the Royals didn't give him a little over two million dollars last spring. So um, and to give, give him time. I don't know that this is the summer. He's more than capable. I just don't know this summer. I'd wait for him in 2021 to really, really show out. 
Yeah, I, I saw him in Florida right before the draft. Uh, at they played Mizzou up in uh, Columbia, so I was there for that series, and I thought he was incredibly toolsy. Uh, he he played a clean shortstop. I didn't think he's. I don't think like I agree with you that I don't think that's his future position. He's athletic as hell, and I think center field could actually be a really good spot for him. And I think that would take a little bit of pressure off his bat. Uh, I think he he's perfectly capable of hitting really you know being a solid contributor at the big league level with his stick, um, and I, mainly for him. Uh, I, for those, uh, if you follow him on social media, he he mentioned that he had been kind of going through some mental health issues and things like that. And I I really hope that he has started to overcome those things. Uh, obviously, you you never want to see that for anybody. I deal with that stuff, uh, so I totally understand and empathize with him. And I hope that he has has found a way to cope with that. And I would imagine that dealing with those things probably was a factor in why he did struggle in Idaho Falls uh, last season when we really didn't expect him to. And I, th- I think he will have a good year in Lexington. He's a guy that I think I had him uh, in my I, my rankings were, to, weren't, were not a part of the aggregate, but I, I probably have him in that 15 to 20 range right now. But if he pops a little bit in Lexington in a good hitters environment, I would I could probably sneak him into that 10 to 12 range. I, I think he's a guy that's going to be, be just one of those sneaky good guys through the minors. And then he could, you know, could get to the big leagues and go, whoa, where did this guy come from? Like he feels like just one of those under the radar dudes that just finds a way to pop. Yeah, I can see it. I'm gonna need to see what the Royals do with them defensively. Um, right. I think I think that's a big part of it. Um, but for sure, yeah, I, I I can totally see that where, um, and, and he may be that way his whole career, where the athleticism and the tools and the flashes never really meet production. Kind of like honestly, what Adalberto Mondesi has done so far. Um, he shows flashes of brilliance and then he'll strike out seven at bats in a row and you're like, uh, and then he shows flashes of brilliance and it's five strikeouts in a row. And it's like, okay. Um, and and that's obviously hyperbolic, but, um, you know, the the, the the tools tools are probably going to outweigh what he actually does. Yeah. And again, that's not to say Mondesi won't start producing all of a sudden just to this point in Mondesi's career, the tools and the flashes haven't met up with overall production. And I think, you know, it's it's totally possible that that's Brady McConnell as well. I could definitely see that. Moving on here, uh, Neil DeLegend asks, uh, who is leading the race for the fifth starter right now? That's a really good question. I think with Junis being having not thrown for a while, Skoglin hasn't thrown for a while, you got Keller, Montgomery, Duffy, Junis, Lopez, Singer, uh, I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, and, and it doesn't really matter what we think because I don't know how the Royals are going to handle the Royals. I, I just want everybody to be clear on this. The Royals at some point this season will find a way to manipulate singer service time to gain the extra year, right? They're going to have him in the minor leagues for 15 days, take the extra year in 2026 or whatever it is, 2027. It's going to happen. Will it happen at the beginning of the year? Will it happen in the middle of the year? End of the year? I don't know. Um, I think Brady Singer, for me, would have the edge right now in terms of how they've pitched, talent, prospect status, whatever. But because I think they're going to game his service time early on, I'm going to give it to Jorge Lopez. He's actually really impressed me. I think he's looked really good this year. And I don't know that he's going to be the fifth starter. But if I had to guess opening day right now, who it would be, I would just guess Jorge Lopez – because I really don't know who else it would be. 
Yeah, I, I definitely lean toward Jorge Lopez at this point because I, I do think the Royals will gain Brady Singer's service time. We see Brady Singer by the end of April, early May, and then he takes that fifth role and you probably move Jorge Lopez to the bullpen. And I think that role is going to be a solid one for Jorge Lopez because he has that really good a good fastball and a good changeup and he can make it work. And I think Brady Singer's just a better option in the big league rotation. You really start to look toward the future now that these guys are really starting to come up. The core four is on their way, and they're going to be taking spots in the big league rotation very soon. I think Singer's that first guy. But on opening day in Chicago, a guaranteed right field, I think Jorge Lopez is your fifth starter. Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you said there. Yeah. So Cody at Cody Storm Panic asks, speculate a trade return for Ian Kennedy, Danny Duffy, Alex Gordon, Jorge Soler, Whit Merrifield, Salvador Perez could get. Who is most likely to be moved in 2020, 2021? Would Royals fans be upset? Very loaded question here, so let's try and let's try and break it down a little bit. Okay, so they're not trading Salvi. They're probably not trading Gordon. Ian Kennedy. You don't think so? Doesn't doesn't Gordo have that clause in his contract? Yeah, they're not trading Alex Gordon. I'm not even going to pretend they're going to trade him. If they trade him, I will be absolutely shocked. So I'm not even going to entertain that. Salvi and Gordon are off the table, I think. Um, Wit is probably off the table at this point. Just because if they were going to trade him, they'd have traded him last year. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, Surely not, like, now would be a really weird time to go trade Wit Merrifield because that would make no sense. Now that you're closer to competing with the core four coming up, Trading with Merrifield now would be really odd, unless somebody just knocked your doors off. So, if they're going to trade with Merrifield, it better be for, it better be because Gavin Lux had Tommy John surgery, and Gavin Lux is going to miss the rest of the year, and they need a second baseman. So we trade them with. They send us Gavin Lux and say good luck with him next year. So it better be something like that if you're going to trade with Merrifield now. Um, Ian Kennedy, something like a Joey Wentz return, 40, 40 future value, like you know reasonably expect uh, a starting pitcher somewhere in the near in the near future uh, Joey Wentz was at double a pitched really well probably number four number five in a starting rotation in the big leagues um nothing wrong with that for Ian Kennedy who else was on there uh it was yeah Duffy I don't think he's getting moved and then Jorge Soler yeah Soler actually makes some sense like I could see where if the season's not going well and he's hit 25 home runs at the all-star break, I could see that. What's he going to get in a return? That's a really good question. I think um, when Steven Souza Jr. was traded, didn't they get Brandon Drury in return? Or did they get Nick Solak and Brandon Drury went to New York? Uh, so Well, Steven Souza played for – he was with the Diamondbacks. And so like no, he was at, he was in Tampa Bay and went to Arizona. That's right, that's right. And um, Arizona sent Drury to New York, who sent Solak to Tampa. That sounds right. Regardless, Nick Solak keeps getting slept on. He is the most underrated top 100 prospect, in my opinion, who's not appearing on a lot of top 100 prospect, or at least it wasn't on Fangraphs top 100 prospects list. Don't really understand that. I think that dude's like a top 60 prospect in baseball. All he does is hit. All he's ever done is hit, and they've been playing him at second base, center field. You're telling me that guy's not top 100 prospect? Whatever. So um, I would I would look for something like Nick Solak for Soler, a borderline top 100 prospect uh, that plays a, a, a nice defensive position and has hit along the way and maybe is a little underrated at this point. Who? I don't know. Um, but something like that, I, I, I think, because – 
that well, I, and even I say that, that's not I'm not basing that 100 percent off the Steven Souza Jr. trade. If you if you're listening to this and you think, well, the Steven Souza Jr. got Nick Solak, I think Nick Solak was extremely underrated. I don't think that was a very smart trade on New York's part at all. Um, if that's if I've got that trade correct. So when I'm talking about Nick Solak, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm talking about a top 60 prospect, probably somewhere between 50 and 60, who is going to rake at second base or third base or something like that. Yeah, I think the only two guys that are realistic that could get traded are Ian Kennedy and Jorge Soler. I wouldn't. I I feel the other way around about Alex Gordon. I think they they wouldn't have put that clause in his contract if it wasn't a possibility. So I I could see them moving. I don't know what the return would be. It probably be yeah, just like a and, flyer on somebody, kind of like a like a Kevin Merrill, Dyron Blanco sort of. So okay, so like that's what the Royals got so, It'd be something like that. I don't think you would get anybody that's better than a forty, but. I, I I could see a team that needs a fourth outfielder going and getting Alex Gordon. Right, but that's the thing is I don't think the Royals would trade Alex Gordon for a flyer. I think the only way he gets traded is if he is a ball in at the All-Star break and somebody needs like a middle of a lineup bat. And if you're banking on that Alex Gordon to be available, I think you are crazy. Oh, for sure. He, got, he was really hot to begin last year, and he was not good uh, down the stretch. Or at least he was – back to being like normal down the stretch. Um, and so I don't think he's even close to being like a middle of the order bat. And I don't think the Royals are going to trade him unless they get something like a middle of the order return, which I don't see happening at all. Um, I don't think there is a chance like when the Royals traded, like you're talking about Jake Deacon was a great example. They're, they're not trading Alex Gordon. If that's the return, their only way I think they would trade him at this point is if they got a really good return because Alex Gordon was hitting the ball really well. That's fair. I, yeah, I think you can, if he if he's hitting the way he did two years ago, then he obviously no one's going to want him. But if he hits like he did in the first half or at least the first couple of months last year for, up until the All-Star break, then I think his strike will be irons hot. Um, but other than that, I a team's not going to take him if he's sitting a buck 80 or whatever. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to see where it goes. I think it's a possibility, but it wouldn't surprise me if they held on to him, let him have his swan song, and then move on in 2021 without him yeah that's kind of where i'm at with him all right william baker asks is the kind of goes back to our conversation with jeff ellis uh, is nick gonzalez playing himself into the top three? Oh yeah for sure and i think oh, especially yeah. as long as emerson hancock is you know maybe a question mark around his lat um i think nick gonzalez right now is in the top three and it's just a matter of which one of the other quote unquote big three uh fall to number four um so it only time will tell as far as that goes so and, and one thing i want royals fans to understand too is nick gonzalez is having a crazy year he is going absolutely bananas but when alabama plays arkansas a&m week one of the college football season and Tua throws eight touchdowns right that's not the game where you go oh my gosh Tua might be the number one overall pick. It's when he goes and he lights it up against Auburn. And Nick Gonzalez hasn't played anybody close to that level yet. Um, he hit five home runs against – I don't even know what the name of the school was. Who did he hit five home runs in a day against the other day? I have no idea. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, but like he, he hasn't – they haven't gotten in the conference play. You know, I mean, he's been great. He was great in the Cape last year. He's probably going to be drafted in the top three picks. But it's not like he's a surefire number one overall pick 
where like the Royals could absolutely still get him at number four. Um, but he's, you know, I, I just, I think he's getting a li- people getting a little too excited about Gonzalez right now. Um, I would still much, much rather have Spencer Torkelson if I could just pick who I got out of this draft. Right. So Nick and Salt, they played Purdue Fort Wayne that day in that doubleheader. <laughs> right. Okay. So I didn't even know go. that school existed for, to be fair. I didn't either. So, so there you go. I mean, that, that's kind of more or less my point is I would much rather have Torkelson. I'd probably, as long as everything, all the medicals checked out Emerson Hancock, I'd much rather have him as well. So, and probably Austin Martin out of Vanderbilt. So I still personally have Nick Gonzalez at number four in this draft, but, um, totally understand with the, with the stat line, why you'd be really excited about him right now. Yeah. I, I think what he's doing in Mexico state, I mean, it's video game numbers. Like I can't even do that in the show with, with my creative player. So, I mean, what, what he's doing right now, like it's special and regardless of competition, it's special. Uh, but I think people are more excited about what he did on the Cape. And I think that's why, like, I think he's just proving that what he did on the Cape is like legit. Uh, and for, to do what he did to spike his uh, draft prospects there, I think uh, says enough. Uh, do I think he's playing himself in the top three? I, I think it's a possibility, but I think Torkelson and Austin Martin are locks in the top three. And then it just depends on where teams fit. Do they want another, do they want a middle, like a stick, like uh, Nick Gonzalez? Do they want Emerson Hancock. Do they want Asa Lacey? Any of those guys. So it, it really just depends on need, but I think Austin Martin and Spencer Torkelson are definitely going in the top three. And then it's, kind of whoever, you know, take your pick at number four. And I think there's plenty of really good options, both prep and college pitcher and position player that the Royals could take. And I, I, you know, none of the, none of those options would necessarily surprise me uh, if they went in any sort of those, any one of those directions. I don't think that it's as surefire this year as Bobby Witt Jr. felt all of last year. Yeah, for sure. And I think one guy that Royals fans need to get on board with is a guy named Zach Veen. He's a high school center fielder out of Florida. That kid is a freak. Um, he has hit a couple of of home runs that you know we used to we used to um, you know gawk at, at shots Bryce Harper would hit, and we gawked at some, some shots Bobby Witt Jr. hit in the home run derby. This kid is hitting the same type of shots in games uh, down in Florida right now. I think he's out of Vero Beach, Florida. So Zach Veen, right now, if I had to pick in the top four, I'd probably take one of the college guys. If one of those college guys starts slumping and you convince me that Zach Veen has a better ceiling and do you think the hit tools there and everything checks out, <coughs> excuse me, I think Zach Veen is still a really good option for Kansas City uh, there at number four as a prep outfielder. You know, it just kind of goes back to the old adage of, you know, it just sounds different coming off his bat. When you watch some of those tape measure shots that he's hitting, it definitely has that sort of vibe of just, you know, when a tool is that loud, you just know. And he his his game power and then just the raw ability that he has swinging the bat definitely has that sort of vibe. But I'm not going to – I would much rather take a college guy here than Zach Veen. But, like, a, I, I agree with you that if you can convince me that he the hit tool's there and he has a really high ceiling of being a 55 – you know, a 60 maybe – then shoot, let's go get him and let's see what, let's see what he can do. Yeah, I agree with hundred percent. I think you put him in a, in a class that already has, or I'm sorry, in a, in a, in a system that already has teenage Bobby Witt jr. Which I guess actually he turns 20 here pretty soon, but still young Bobby Witt jr. Eric Pena, Daryl Collins, 
and you add a guy like Zach Veen to that, then when the core four get through and that wave of Prado Melendez catches up to him, if they catch up to him, then you still have a wave behind that and younger guys that can come through and make an impact. Um, you know, the Royals like to draft in waves, and so if they go college bat to try to catch up to the core four arms, I get it. Um, but having another wave ready in the making wouldn't be such a bad thing either. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Moving on here, uh, Patrick Brennan asks, do you think I'm cute? I mean, obviously. Uh, moving on. Uh, let's see, what else we got? We got a couple more here for you. Let me make sure that I get them up here. I've lost them. Son of a bitch. Seth wanted to know who we think the best teenage pitching prospect <laughs> in the system is. I mean, th- this is him just trying to bait us into freaking uh, Johan Simarell. <laughs> yeah, is Jeffrey Del Rosario still a teenager? Or did he turn 20? Let me look. I... I cannot remember if it's, I think in all seriousness, if Del Rosario is still a teenager, it's him. Um, if he, he turned, will, he's 19 right now. Okay. So it's him. Jeffrey Del Rosario. I hope again, Royals fans, if you're listening, that kid is really good. I know he hasn't, wasn't healthy last year and health doesn't just suddenly improve as we get older. Um, but if that kid is healthy and I've heard he's back up throwing close to uh, up to 96, um, that kid is filthy and he's kind of a mature pitcher for 19 years old. Like you watch Johansson Morel pitch and the kid is clearly 17. Like, Oh, yep. I get it. That kid is clearly a teenager, 17, 18 years old. I understand why he's an A ball. You watch Jeffrey Del Rosario pitch and you could be tricked into thinking it's a 22 year old kid who maybe has been there for a while just cause he looks so composed on the mound and he's not overthrowing. It's kind of a natural 94, 95. So, um, I hope that kid's healthy because if he is, he is definitely the Royals' best teenage pitching prospect. Right, I, and I, I agree with you. I, I would definitely take Del Rosario over Morel. I think Morel's still really, really good, but I, I think, I think Del Rosario is a little more refined, and I really hope he's healthy this year. Uh, last question here uh, is from Kellen Kellen Ten. Uh, at Kellen 10 and he asks, who is the best prospect left off MLB's top 30 and how many top 100 guys could we have by 2021? Okay. While I answered the one about 2021, will you look up the top 30 and rattle me off like, the, Oh, look, no, it's vi- probably Vinny Pasquantino. Um, yeah, Vinny I, Pasquantino. I, I haven't seen on anybody's lists. That's a guy that you talk about just flat out, go out and hit. Um, he definitely did that last year. So, I guess we'll see what happens to him when he gets to Lexington. But one thing that, like, like Logan Porter last year was a catcher for the Royals, 23 years old in rookie ball, had the highest weighted runs created plus of all qualified minor league hitters last year. It was over 200. He was, like, just hammering baseballs in rookie ball. And he still struck out quite a bit. Then he passed Quintino as a freshman at Old Dominion and as a junior at Old Dominion. He got hurt as a sophomore, so I'm throwing those stats out. Freshman and junior year at Old Dominion and last year at Rookie Ball walked more than he struck out. So it's not like he's up there striking out and hitting 14 home runs and hitting really well. He doesn't strike out. like he, he His bat-to-ball skills are really good, and he's just so big and strong, he's able to muscle it over the fence. It's not like he's up there selling out for power. I think that kid's different. I know we're probably reaching a little bit talking about him as a top 30 prospect potentially you know in the conversation for potential first baseman of the future but the kid rakes especially against righties so um for his ability to carve out a role as a top 30 prospect in this system i think is 
um, I think he's definitely capable of, of showing some people that this this summer. I really don't think it's that far out of the realm of possibility, especially if he, if he does, if he hits at a similar level to what he did in uh, in Burlington to what he's going to do in Lexington this year. If he hits that way in Lexington, it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up in that in the back half of a top thirty in midseason. Yeah, I, no, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah, if he if he hits to like an all star Sally level, then I think I think we see him in that twenty seven to thirty range, which I I think I I am fully on board. I I will put on my if he does that, if if he makes it in the top thirty mid season, then I will put Vinny Pasquantino fan account in my in my bio. Absolutely. So the next part of that was how many tor- top one hundred prospects could we have next year. Let's go with the end of next year. So we're talking mid-season 2021. Okay. When when MLB Pipeline releases their mid-season list next year, let's go Bobby Witt. Well, actually, by mid-season next year, we're going to have guys losing eligibility. So let's go with the beginning of – actually – Okay, so let's just make a let's make a little note here. We're going to pretend that Daniel Lynch, Chris Bubich, Brady Singer, Jackson Coe are are out of eligibility by so midseason of the next out. year. Okay. So the core four is out of the conversation. So then sneaking into the conversation, I think you could very you will have Bobby Witt Jr. You could very legitimately see someone like Kyle Isbell if he still has eligibility. Eric um, Pena. Eric Pena. I think Khalil Lee's probably out out of eligibility by then. So we're still at three. Um, I could see Darryl, Melendez. I could see Melendez sneaking back in like the back half of top 100. I don't think he's a top 50, but I think I could see him if he rebounds from a poor season, offensive season last year. I could see him sneaking back in. Yeah, he's got he's gonna have to hit. So potentially four. I think Daryl Collins is a potential fifth. Um, I think Del Rosario and Morel are capable, but Del Rosario would have to be at like double A, triple A, and absolutely dealing. So <clears throat> I think. Four probably at most, but only because the core four are most likely to graduate, right? If they weren't yeah. on the fast track to MLB, if they were like in A ball this year, you would have like potentially seven or eight. So timing is gonna is gonna cause some issues there. Um, but I'm gonna go by mid season next year four, beginning of the season five maybe. Yeah, I I, <clears throat> I think that's a pretty solid solid assumption there because. I think the core four are in the rotation by like all four of them are pitching in the big leagues by the middle of 21. Yeah. And, and I should be clear if you're listening to this, I'm not going to bank on all four of those guys we talked about, but you got to add in the the number four overall pick in this year's draft, plus probably a top seven overall pick in next year's draft. So um, if you add those in and give yourself like seven chances, eight chances, I think there will be four Royals prospects that climb out of seven or eight guys, maybe nine, that could possibly uh, be on the top 100. Yeah, I don't think that's too far off the wrong possibility. Alex, do you have any final thoughts for this episode? Final thoughts. Uh, you know, uh, last night, Joel, we recorded with uh, old friend Josh Kaiser uh, on his on his podcast, and we went over there and we talked a little bit about Kyle Isbell. And today, he goes out and makes a couple of insane diving plays in the outfield for Kansas City. Guys, we have got to make sure we've got Kyle Isbell on our radars this year. He may not get a whole lot of big league time before September, and he may not even get big league time in September, uh, to be honest with you. But assuming that he gets a shot at some point in 2020, the kid is a freaking stud. Um, If he doesn't get injured last year, 
He's on the fast track to Major League Baseball, and he's a top 100 prospect without any questions. But because he did get hurt, if he goes out and hits this year, like I think he's capable at double A, he might be out of prospect eligibility before he can make the midseason lists this year. Um, so we'll see what happens. There's a log jam in the outfield, and I and I really don't expect him to be in major league in, in Kansas City uh, before September. But I think it's entirely possible because that kid is a freaking stud. Yeah, I, I missed the first part of when you talked about uh, the spring training BP that you watched. But as Ooh. you started talking, you were talking about Kyle Isbell just hitting the ball to all fields with power. Like That got me really amped up. And we've been on the Kyle Isbell hype train since the Royals drafted him. So I'm I'm excited to see what he does this year. I, I really think we're going to be able to write last year off as just a mulligan because he got hurt. I think if he doesn't get hurt with the way he was hitting to start last season – uh, he could easily have been in double A raking there. And then we're talking about him like, okay, when do we see him this season in 2020? I don't think that's going to happen, but I think we see him by the middle of 2021, if maybe not even earlier than that. I really do believe that he is that good. Yeah. And let's just say last year he doesn't get hurt. He goes to double A, ends the year at double A, and he posts 115 uh, ish weighted runs created plus in double A. And he goes out there and he has the spring he's having right now with he's hit a home run, maybe another home run in there. He hit a double today. Made, he's made three or four incredible catches in the outfield. We're, we're asking the question, is Kyle Isbell going to be the opening day center fielder? Like he's yeah. legitimately just being injured, not even performance based. Just if he doesn't get hurt last year, he's in the conversation right now for the opening day starting center fielder. Um, so. I know the injuries derailed a lot of excitement Royals fans had for him, but don't let them because that kid is really, really freaking good. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. This, this is a dude that, we're, that you're going to love in Kansas City for a long time. If you don't know a lot about Kyle Bell, you're new to the site, new to the podcast, uh, go and look up some of his stuff. Um, and it, just check Royals Twitter over the last few days. They posted some of those diving plays that he's made in left field. Like the, the, Those are plays that will make Alex Gordon blush, and we know how good he is defensively too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I, I don't have anything else. Go listen to the Clearing Waivers podcast. We had a really good time over there. We talked about the prospects, the core four. We gushed about Kyle Isbell for about 15 minutes. We talked about Turnpike Troubadours, former and current Royals players, prospects that we'd love to have a beer with. Uh, we had some we had some good conversation there. Like It's just a fun podcast. Go listen to it. It's a lot of just Kansas City sports, arguments, all that kind of stuff. It, it's a really good time. Uh, go over and check Josh's work. It was a ton of fun. Absolutely. We appreciate you guys listening. We'll see you guys again real soon. All right. Where can everyone follow you on Twitter before we head out? At Doovy, D-U-V-Y underscore zero one three. Follow me at JT Penfield. Be sure to follow the site at Royals Farm. Posting content there. We got our top 77 rankings out now. Uh, We got a ton of spring training stuff. We're tweeting constantly. Uh, We're going to be back with an episode of the podcast next week, and we'll talk to you all then. 